Hello, everybody. Welcome to our first ever go at a live recording of Infection Control Matters. We normally just sit around the microphone, and this, so this is going to be, thanks to my colleague at the back, the, probably the best recorded one we ever have done. Joining me are my usual colleagues, Brett Mitchell and uh, Phil Russo. Didn't introduce myself, I'm Martin Kiernan. And we've also got two special guests, Sally Havers and Belinda Henderson. Belinda is a bit nervous because her session is starting immediately after this. So. But anyway, we thought we'd have a bit of a chat. And um, if anybody does want to make a comment, don't forget it will get recorded and go out on the podcast. So uh, Brett will wander down to you with a microphone. But anyway, we're going to kick off with talking about priorities and where we think we might go going forward. And I, it's really nice to see all the work you're doing in aged care uh, over here in Australia because it's, we're a bit lacking in that department over in the UK. So I'm going to kick off asking Sally about priorities and progress and where we can go with infection prevention in aged care because that's been such a huge challenge during the pandemic. It has. Thanks, Martin. So um, we have done a bit of work at the conference on this. We had a workshop on Sunday which was dedicated to looking at issues and priority setting in aged care. Um, to add a bit of background, through COVID, we had a, a, a piece of national policy that came out that requires all IPC, or sorry, all aged care facilities in Australia to... Um, train up a dedicated what we, is called an IPC lead and throw and go through an education pro- and training process, um, and that was enacted quite quickly in response to the issues that were being seen in aged care. So there was dispro- disproportionate impact in aged care in Australia in terms of COVID, um, and in particular uh, infection, but also death, unfortunately. And so the workshop that we had on Sunday was dedicated to the role of the IPC leads and trying to establish uh, where we're at currently in terms of that process and that role and what are some priorities for us to move forward. Um, one of the biggest things is that it, it, like a lot of policy that was introduced at the time, um, it was ve- introduced very quickly um, without a lot of time to assess and evaluate and one of the biggest issues currently for those IPC leads is scope of practice, Okay. Um, expectations of them in their roles. Um, there's no standardised position description or understanding of what their role is um, in their own facility and um, the expectations that are put upon them. I think the other biggest challenge for our IPC leads, particularly those practising in isolation, is that they don't get any dedicated time to do this work. So um, often for our IPC leads, they had no background in infection prevention and control. They did a a 13, 14-week course, uh, which was dedicated to putting them through that process to establish some foundation knowledge. Um, but from then on, they were on their own. Okay. And I mean, so, were, were they volunteers or were they just told you're ooh, going to be the IPC lead? Good question, Martin. <laughs> um, yeah. I think like most people in infection <laughs> prevention and control, it's probably a group of people who who are dedicated and passionate and who thought, oh, that sounds a bit interesting and put their hand up. But also I think there was a big proportion of people who 
were maybe sitting at the desk at the wrong time when the, when the manager <laughs> walked through and got the, ah, you're the one. And there has been a huge attrition, right, you know, of, of IPC leads. And I think um, it's – we heard some stats yesterday in one of the aged care talks um, – that they had lost quite a lot of their IPC leads, which, you know, it's very hard then for, for a facility to find someone else. So, yeah, very good question. And I think probably a few other ones that would have wanted to do it anyway and then a whole lot that just got thrown in the deep end. So, um, Sally, whilst I ask this question, I also might say to the audience who are here, if you want to add new commentary, just, just pop your hand up and I'll come around with the mic, as Martin alluded to. But whilst everyone's putting up their hand... Um, what was did you did you find any facilitators? What were some of the potential ideas that came from the workshop that might help with some of those barriers you just identified? Yeah, so there were some really great outcomes, which was one of the things we wanted to be very forward focusing as part of the workshop rather than um, sort of walking away without much. We we did come up with some ideas and recommendations from those in the group. Um, one of the biggest things was, first of all, to have a standardised position description and a standardised scope of practice um, with an understanding or, I guess, a standardisation across Australia of what that should look like um, for each of our facilities. But also, too, around resources, particularly in terms... One of the biggest things that came out was a bit of a surprise to us was around how to... Um, how to train or not necessarily train, but what can we design that can support our IPC leads to be able to educate those that they work with. Mm. So that was a really um, interesting point and probably one that surprised us. The IPC leads were more focused on resources that they could use to, um, to educate all of those around them and get that change of practice. And I think that's probably one of the things that really hit home to me as a facilitator of the day is how isolated our IPC leads are. So it's all fine and good if you've got a good governance, you've got someone you can ring up, you call a friend. But if you're an IPC lead that's not got any connection outside of your facility, it's probably a lonely old role, I would say. But that's a good point. So I'm, and I was, uh, I'm wondering about, do we know how those leads are going now in, when they've gone back to work? Are they getting the time that they need to have? Are they getting support or do we have any idea? It sounds like there's a real mix. So I think, um, like I said, you know, through, through where I work at Darling Downs Health, we've got quite a robust governance structure that sits around our aged care facilities um, I know other big groups um, who presented on the day where they might have a broader um, chain, if you like, of facilities or someone who comes in and helps them. But it seems like outside of that, those IPC leads probably have not had much support. Um, they're probably not supported now. We had examples in the actual um, workshop of people who were getting communications from their sites, wanting them to <laughs> manage things, manage outbreaks while they're sitting in the conference, um, trying to make decisions and not knowing whether those decisions, like we've all gone through in the past two years, not knowing whether the decision that you're making is the right one mm. and not really having anyone. So yep. I don't think that support is, is there now. Yep. It certainly might not have been in the last two years, but... I don't feel that it is there based on the feedback that we got from the sure. workshop. Yeah. Sally, the, um, 
I mean, to get people into position and give them a 13-week training course is impressive. Was that training course specifically designed for aged care or was it just like, this is what we've got yes. and then you can do it? And then did you get feedback or whether it was actually fit for purpose for that group and had to refine it? That, that was actually another thing that came out of the workshop on Sunday. So the answer to your question was that there's a, a list of, was there six being in five or six um, different courses that you could do that were um, counted as being, uh, you know, appropriate for you to become an IPC lead. I can only talk for the ASIPSI Foundations Program. That's the one that I specifically know about. Um, and it wasn't designed specifically to aged care. So mm. it covered, it was the foundations course, which any, you know, novice IPC can do, but it wasn't adjusted to the aged care settings. And I think that's the other biggest challenge that I would say for anyone working in infection control and aged care right now is it feels very much like everything is just picked up and plonked yeah. on aged care. It was a lot of the discussion on Sunday that there's not specific infection control guidelines that are contextually appropriate for the aged care setting. Everything's designed for the acute care setting. I know this is not new in infection control. We've been talking about this for a long time. But aged care is very different. Our population slash source is very different. Our environment is extremely different. But our residents, this is their... They live there. This is yeah. their life, you yeah. know. They're not there for a small period of time where you can say, this is what we're going to do for this bit just because you're here. This is their life. And... For many of them, the final part of their life and to pick up our acute stuff and go, oh, here you go, do your foundations course, that's all you need to know, or here's the infection control guidelines, plonk that over here, or the National Hand Hygiene Initiative, which we know doesn't apply very well in that setting, it's just not working. And we, that's another big priority that came out of our day on Sunday. We need to start looking at the principles of infection control and how they work in the aged care setting. So, Belinda, we might turn to you. You were just involved in a panel discussion at the conference, and some of that was talking about some specific priorities, but there are many others out there. What's been your... What's your thoughts on some of the challenges and priorities that you see in the hospital sector, turning to that for a minute? Yeah, thanks, Brett. I think the key um, theme, I suppose, is really around infrastructure and resource and that capital resource. So in particular in Australia and indeed internationally, I think Martin will agree, a lot of the hospitals are quite old now. <laughs> They're you know, not really fit for purpose. They certainly weren't pandemic ready. When it comes for your air handling systems, your physical locations, long corridors, lots of multi-bed bays and those types of things, and the lack thereof single rooms and also type N rooms to provide negative pressure isolation. And whilst... There's debate around whether you need negative pressure all the time for patients with pathogens like um, SARS-CoV-2. I think it's really important we start the conversation now because there will be new builds nationally and internationally. And I think we really start to lobby and get our voice out there that we do need increased numbers of single rooms. All of the um, publications and the guidance documents internationally don't necessarily prescriptively say a set number. And I imagine that's probably because there's been so much discussion and nobody can decide on what that magic number is. 
But I think, you know, a 40% build with single rooms is obviously not enough when you know that single rooms are used for lots of other things. You know, your palliative care patient, disruptive patient, a patient that's just had a really terrible diagnosis or something really awful happened to them. You know, the confused, the cognitively impaired, the wanderer, the, the mental health patient, the list can go on and on and on. And then we have a co com proportion of those patients that require single room accommodation for infection prevention and control. So... I think, you know, 60% touted in a bit of the literature, 80% in others, and the US seems to be trying to push for 100% single rooms. I don't know that that's necessarily the best fit, um, but I think it's the design elements. It's not just the HVAC, it's not just the plumbing, it's the patient flow. How do, how do we get the patient from A to B? Emergency departments, absolute nightmare. You know, mental health, nightmare, rehabilitation. It's like Sal says with the residential aged care, it's a home environment, it's getting patients prepared to be discharged or residents prepared to be going to their end destination. And I think we really need to look at those infrastructure questions. What percentage of single rooms is appropriate? What percentage do we need that provide a negative pressure environment that's suitable to manage the next pandemic that may be different? You know, the transmission dynamics may be very, very different. And what does that look like? And I think, you know, the furnishings, all of that stuff's pretty set in stone now. It needs to be wipeable. You need to be able to clean it, blah, blah, blah. But I think it's that physical infrastructure. And I don't know, Brett, I think finite budget. How much money yeah. is there going to be in yeah. health internationally as a result of the health crisis that is COVID? Mm. So I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... Do we actually know that moving to all single rooms does reduce healthcare-associated infection? Have we got enough staff to run? And is it actually cost-effective to go a whole single-room hospital? You know, you, I mean, Brett, your reviews have shown there's a risk to the next occupant of a single room, yeah. so we know we don't actually decontaminate rooms particularly well anyway. So there's... Uh, I, I mean, I, like everything in infection control, isn't it? it's always a bit of a balance and, and, and yeah. risk-benefit. And, and you're right. And, and so there's all the other associated things with sing, increasing single rooms costs associated with additional cleaning efficiencies that are gained so but that needs to be yeah I, I but I, I think your point is well made there Belinda about thinking about the future and um, the need to consider infrastructure any other um, key priorities that you've seen in the conference so far uh, or I know you've got the SIPSI lecture coming up which we're really looking forward to and hopefully we've not even got to grab you at some point to talk about that but um is there anything else that you would like to or, or would like to comment on about? Um, I think priorities? we need to rethink the paradigm of contact and transmission-based precautions. I think it's timely. We know, as infection prevention and control experts and leads of programs across the system, we know that if everyone did the right thing, we wouldn't have transmission, or all of those preventable transmission events would be wouldn't be non-existence. You know, Staphoris bacteremia would be a thing of the past if people prepped the skin, looked after their lines, washed their hands and removed the piece of plastic when it's not necessary. We know that, but we know that people don't do the right thing. But I think if we removed the contact precaution elements, so the gloves and the plastic aprons or gowns, depending on where, where you work and what you do, and just brought it in line with standard precautions, Hopefully that would make people think that, oh, goodness, I need to wash my hands. Or the analogy that's been touted around these last couple of days has been if it's sticky and icky and it's not yours, don't touch it. Um, so I think those sorts of things become really, really important. And I guess the other thing which I know is being debated internationally is around droplet 
and airborne precautions. And perhaps my view, and I know I said this in the podcast around respiratory precautions, is that we need to have respiratory precautions as one element. And then you do a risk assessment because that's what we need to do. And that risk assessment looks at what's the organism or if it's unknown, um, what's the nature of the patient? So are they on BiPAP? Are they a singer? Are they a screamer? Whatever it might well be that increases the risk of transmission. And then the staff member then makes an assessment based on risk as to which mask they choose depending on pathogen and behaviour and which location you physically put the patient in because one size isn't going to fit all across the dynamics that is the healthcare continuum in terms of single room accommodation availability, negative pressure isolation, what type of ward or environment clinically is the patient requiring for their care. So I think we need to really look at this and it's timely, we need to do it now. And um, I, th I think the thing that's coming more important for me also is the impact of infection prevention on the environment. Um, and it, it was really apparent to me last year working in the hotels and we would literally see truckloads of PPE being taken away, you know, during the day of, of stuff that was used once. And it, and it does concern me now that, um, you know, we ha are having a big impact. I, I would like to see us start to bring that into all our thoughts and discussions about um, infection prevention interventions. Um, and sustainability is environmental sustainability is a good term but somebody once described me as um, described to me that sustainability means just keeping your head above water and we actually should be doing better than just sustainability we should be trying to improve our environment or get it back to what it should be so I think that environmental impact of everything we do in infection prevention control is going to be really important. Do you think that's going to be a difficult thing to sell to staff because they've been so used to wearing PPE for so long us saying actually you can get rid of this now either means we were wrong to start with or we're now going to put them at risk in their view. Yeah. How, how are we going to sell that, Phil? It's, it's hard. I'm, I'm involved in, in what is called a disinvestment study at the moment where an intervention is actually being withdrawn gradually and, and that's about bed alarms for falls. And there's, that's really difficult to get staff to disinvest in what they thought was a preventative intervention. Um, so it will be a huge challenge to, to change. Yeah. Come on, Sal. Can I make a comment, though? I think now is the time to mm. act on anything like that because if anything that has good has come out of the last two years, it's our ability to respond to and adapt to change I, and to actually risk assess um, because we were constantly saying, we, you know, we're telling you to do this today, this is the plan today, but it might change tomorrow, mm, depending true. on what is happening tomorrow. Yep. And so if we're going to start saying... It's a good point. No more gloves, yeah, no more gowns or whatever, now I think is the time to say, well, we're, we've turned on our head. It's not about protection or that was a false sense of security. We are... Now is the time I to make I think that's those a very changes. good point, actually. Yeah. Mm. I think so. And the other thing, just to plug for the conference program, too, is Renee O'Brien, who's a radiographer, actually, from Brisbane, is presenting tomorrow on sustainability in healthcare and has done a lot of work around engaging with teams on recycling projects, removing plastic and all of those things. And I actually think at the moment... It is timely because I actually think we've got a lot of people out there, Phil, that are really, really keen and they're aware of how much rubbish the mm, hospital yeah, makes yeah. and 
and the impact that that has. So I actually think it's really timely and we would probably find with good education, good messaging about if it's sticky and icky, don't touch it, we might find that people would be quite happy to get rid of their gloves. Although the change in the thought process might mean that the patients are really worried that the staff yeah, aren't wearing that is gloves. A good point. Yeah. So we do perhaps need to look at that community messaging as well, given that you walk through the fruit shop and you've got people still wearing gardening gloves to collect their vegetables because, you know, we're starting to hit this new wave of COVID in Australia. So I think that becomes important as well. I think um, that's probably a great time to finish. But just, just on that point, um, I think it's been a real constant theme um, throughout the conference about now is the time to act and uh, really take, the, take, the, take this opportunity that we've been given to do that. And we do have a question from the floor, so I'm very excited by this. So I'm going to pass it over. <laughs> uh, a question and a comment, I guess. Um, I agree with everything that's been said, but I want to build on it. Unfortunately, what I'm also not hearing at the moment is home care and infection control training for providers of care in the home, whether it's aged or health-related. Um, we're hearing long-term care facilities, but very little on home. Mm. The second thing I wanted to raise, which I'm very disappointed that I'm not hearing about, is the mental impact of isolation. With the recent pandemic and long-term care facilities, the isolation of residents to their room as soon as there's an, a lockdown or an outbreak. So yes, they're on isolation if they've got COVID, but then they're on isolation if they don't have COVID. And the very um, restricted access, not only to the families, but also to the providers, the carers that work in there. These residents are left in their room for hours without somebody going in and the mental impact and the depression um, that comes through isolation. I would like to see more information and work being done on the mental impact of precautions. I work for infection control. I'm a manager. Of I understand about putting isolation, but we need to work on these areas. And now you're absolutely right. I did talk about that yesterday briefly in my yeah. session. We wrote an open letter, the IPC folk in the UK, led by Jill Store, to um, the Nursing Times, saying this: it's quite possible to implement infection prevention control and allow visiting and allow end-of-life care and everything. It just didn't happen, unfortunately. We imprisoned thousands of elderly people without their permission, which really wasn't fair. Sally, you wanted to say something? Yeah, so one of the comments I'll make in response to that, to, uh, and I can only speak for aged care, not for um, in-home care, although there were people who did both that were in the workshop, um, was part of our research priority setting was around, and when I'm talking about the in the implementation of infection control guidelines that are both compassionate and improve resident outcomes, improve resident quality of life, and they, that was central to the work that we were doing around any type of research priority setting was that element because it was very well talked about and recognised within the day the impact that these strategies um, had on residents in terms of their care and the longer-term impact of that for them but also their families. So that was central to those um, research priorities that we set. I think we better wrap it up because Belinda's got to shoot to another presentation to do her presentation. Um, so thank you so much, Belinda and Sally, for coming and having a chat, and thanks to everyone in the audience for coming and having a listen. 
hopefully this recorded okay for our first hopefully. live recorded podcast. Thanks to everyone who listened or is listening. Um, and we'll look forward to the rest of the conference and other messages that will come, uh, come out from over the next few days. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.